1: This is the 40-Year Coach Podcast. I'm Adam Stanko. If you're wondering why we are called the 40-Year Coach, well, it's because legendary University of Chicago football coach Amos Alonzo Stagg was once asked after an undefeated season if it was his best ever. His response, I won't know that for another 20 years or so. That's because alongside winning, personal development is equally as important for the complete coach. As a coach, as a teacher, as a leader, will your impact be felt for four years or for 40 years. If you enjoy this podcast, rate and review on iTunes and subscribe. You don't want to miss some of the guests we have coming up. If you don't have an iPhone, you can always check us out on Spreaker, and you can always check us out at the40yearcoach.com to learn more about what we're doing. Now time for our guest, Steve Kerr. His old teammates say he's got the Midas touch. Everything he touches turns to gold. He was one of the most important players in the history of the University of Arizona, helping to lead the team to the 88 Final Four. He's the NBA's all-time leader in three-point field goal percentage and won three rings with the Bulls, two with the Spurs. And that's as a player. Went on to become a wildly successful broadcaster and then a part owner and GM for the Suns during some of their glory years. And in just four seasons as a head coach, he's been to the NBA Finals four times, led the Warriors to an NBA record 73 wins, and he's one of only six NBA head coaches with three NBA titles. Steve Kerr, welcome to the 40-Year Coach Podcast. Thanks, Adam. Good to be here. Um, I'm super excited to talk to you because you're one of those people that in basketball circles, people will always say, you know, that hypothetical, who are four people that you would choose to have dinner with if... If possible, and uh, you've you've been on my list because of your upbringing and and of course you know the success that you've had and and just you know all all your dealings with the media. But I want to start out. There's a book that I absolutely love, A Season Inside, by John Feinstein. That during your uh, fifth year, senior year at uh, at Arizona, uh, captured some of what what you were going through throughout the year. And there's a passage in there that says that when the crowd roars, Steve Kerr, in answer to hearing his name, it gives you chills. Kerr almost blocks the sound of his own name out by now. He's a little embarrassed that he is singled out this way. When I get older, though, I'm sure I'll love showing tapes of it to all my kids, he said. They'll say to me, gee, Daddy, you must have been a great player. And I'll say, yeah, I was. (laughs) And then I'll put the tape away before the game starts so they won't find out the truth. Kerr is so popular here that freshman Matt Muehlbach occasionally tells women that he is Steve Kerr, yes, the Steve Kerr, to try to impress them. He says it works, Kerr says, (laughs) laughing funny. It never worked out all that well for me. Matt Muehlbach swears that story isn't true, and I've been wondering for years whether it is true. So can you clear that up? How much truth is there to the story (laughs) that Matt Muehlbach used to claim he was Steve Kerr?
2: Uh, I would believe Matt. I mean, the, the story's about him, but... First of all, I'm just impressed that you went back uh, 20, what, seven years? How, wait, 19, what was it, 88? So 30 years? That's pretty impressive. Well done.
1: Well, I've been holding onto that book for a long time. So I figured (laughs) if uh, if we ever crossed paths, I had that question to ask you. Uh, So, Coach, I want to go back to your your early life. Born in, in Beirut, Lebanon, such a unique upbringing. Your father at the time, uh, Middle East political science professor at the American University in Lebanon. Um, but then you started, you know, you he then took a job at UCLA when you were one. And then you started traveling around a lot. How would you describe your early life?
2: Um, well, I, I don't remember much of uh, my, you know, my, my first few years, you know, being born in Beirut and growing up. um are not growing up but but you know it's kind of first three, four years of my life I spent quite a bit of time over there, but most of my childhood was spent in l a you know my dad was teaching at u c l a and and uh pretty idyllic life you know in pacific palisades, California, and going to u c l a games with my brother and uh, you know pretty uh, pretty typical suburban life I was I was really fortunate and uh, but as we got older my dad started taking sabbaticals and that's when we really started to uh, see the world and experience different cultures and and move around a little bit and um, you know that experience has really I think in many ways shaped me and shaped my my view of the world now. How so? I think just um, seeing uh, different cultures, seeing how uh, different people live, even though um, everyone kind of wants the same thing. Everyone's looking for the same things: happiness, and you know, a job, and a way to uh, care for their families. And and uh, you know, you want something that's that's uh, solid and healthy and and everyone wants the same thing really but but there's a kind of a different way of going about it in different places different uh countries and for me you know i, I spent a few years in egypt i saw really major poverty um all over the city of cairo and that made a big effect on me i was 10 years old and you know kind of thought of life as southern california and sitting on the beach, and uh, and all of a sudden, I got to look at what real poverty was, and it was, you know, it was eye-opening. Um, so I think just experiencing all that at a young age, um, I think it 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 probably increases your compassion and your tolerance and your awareness of, um, you know, how how alike we all are, and and yet how we live uh, we live differently based on our own culture.
1: I've heard people say that the best way to cure someone's racism is to have them travel, uh, around the <laughs> world. <laughs>
2: yeah.
1: Um, I, you go back to, to the States uh, eventually and, uh, go to Pacific Palisades high school. And, and I think a lot of people don't recall that you, you were an outstanding baseball player. Um, and that, uh, during your junior years and senior years, you made the city final in LA, and yet you lost to a really talented pitcher in Brett Saberhagen. Is this this story true?
2: The story is true. Yeah, <laughs> it was. Uh, we we made the city finals my junior year, and uh, you know we were on a great run, and we thought for sure we we're going to win the whole thing, and we ended up losing thirteen nothing in the, at Dodger Stadium, and we we get no hit. We, nobody, nobody gets a hit, um, and uh, we hadn't ever heard of this pitcher, Saberhagen, and um, about, I think he, I think he got drafted kind of late in the MLB draft uh, that year, and uh, he was MVP of the World Series two years later. So we all felt a lot better about that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> amazing, amazing. So why? During that time, what was it about basketball that uh, you know that you that you had a love for? Especially since you had so much talent in baseball.
2: I didn't have that much. It's not like I you know <laughs> could have played in college or anything. I was a you know good high school player, but uh, I, I loved baseball growing up. You know, back then was different. You played every sport. You, you know, they didn't have that, the, the specializing um that that they do now where you've got a year-round coach and you play and you know travel ball in the off season and play a million games and you you know you kind of have to go down one path and in many ways i think it's an advantage um to to play different sports and to use different muscles and you know kind of uh, see different games um and and then apply those games to your own uh your your favorite sport i think soccer has a tremendous influence on on basketball you can see the guys who played soccer growing up um you know steve nash tony kukoch guys like that you can see the influence uh how they see the, the floor as much like you, you'd see the field um in soccer and so i was I, I was one of those kids i just played whatever was was in uh was in season and um i loved it and uh, but basketball was always my favorite. I loved uh, the movement. I loved uh, loved shooting the ball. I loved playing with four other people and and um, you know trying to do everything as a team. And um, it was by far the most exciting uh, of the sports that I played and the one I wanted to pursue.
1: There's the famous story of your quote unquote recruitment to Arizona, which uh, <laughs> we will discuss, but. But Lou Olson had said about you that you had a good feel for the game. Where do you think that came from at that time? Uh,
2: well, he had a chance to see play after my senior year had finished. Um, he had taken the Arizona job, I think in March. And so it was kind of after the recruiting period had ended and, um, I didn't have any scholarship offers so he he traveled to Southern California and watched the summer leagues and I was playing in the summer leagues and and I played pretty well and he so he uh he gave me a chance and um you know took a chance on me and I, I think uh I did have a good feel I just wasn't I wasn't very fast or, or strong or athletic but I could shoot the ball and I knew knew how to play and I think he he recognized that
1: at the time, there was a quote from, uh, from Olsen that said you had a good feel, but that you also shot the ball low um, and that you weren't going to get the shot off in, uh, in the Pac-10. So uh, obviously that changed <laughs> over time. You found a way to, to get your your shot off. Um, and, the, and the way I, I've always heard the story is that uh, Lute's wife, Bobby, had the quote of saying, you got to be kidding me, when, when Lute took her to come see you play and that he was going to offer you a chance to come to Arizona what was that period like for you
2: <laughs> well it was uh, it was frustrating and it was um, it was kind of scary you know I wasn't sure I mean literally my senior year ended and I didn't have any offers I was I had applied to about four or five schools I was thinking about walking on at um, University of Colorado uh, UC Santa Barbara um, I would have gone to Brown if I had been admitted, but I didn't get in. Um, but that was uh, that was an early choice, an, er- an early possibility. Um, but you know, a few a few schools recruited me. Gonzaga recruited me, and, uh, and then I went up to to Spokane for a visit and played some pickup ball against John Stockton and got absolutely destroyed. And <laughs> the coaches said, uh, "You know what? we'll, we'll pass, uh, but thanks anyway." <laughs> So, you know, I, I felt like I was close, but I just wasn't quite good enough to, uh, to get a scholarship. And so it was very frustrating, and I really didn't know what was going to happen or what I was going to do. Um, but it all obviously worked out um, when I got my chance that summer when Coach Olson offered me the scholarship.
1: At that time, was that an uh, affirmation of something you understood about being able to play at that, at that level
2: No, not at all. Not at all. It was, uh, my God, I can't believe my good fortune. You know, I, I was, I was very practical. You know, I knew exactly what had happened. I mean, he takes the job, Luke takes the job in, uh, March and the team the year before Arizona was four and 24. Um, so they were a mess and, um, you know, he had to purge like five guys off the roster and he didn't have many options so more than anything it was it was like all right i've got this incredible opportunity but you know i i hope i don't blow it you know and, and i knew i knew it was going to be really tough i knew i was in for uh for a, a huge challenge athletically and uh so i didn't i didn't really have any uh false hopes of going in there and and you know playing right away or anything like that. I just wanted to get better and be able to hold my own.
1: We all know now about the Lute Olson and his, his legacy and, and uh, what he built at, at Arizona. But at that time, as you talk about, as you guys are overcoming that, you know, four win start um, prior and, you know, struggling in the league and all those things, Uh, What was it early on that you noticed about his his ability to coach that might have might have stood out and felt really different?
2: Well, he was um, he was incredibly passionate and organized and we had these detailed practices. You know, I I was a John Wooden disciple. I grew up a UCLA ball boy and and went to John Wooden's camps. And, you know, so I was really well drilled when I was a kid. And I you know, we got to I got to Arizona and we right away we we're having these three hour practices where we're going over everything. You know, we're going over uh every little detail. And, you know, he didn't mess around. I mean he knew the job that was facing him. And uh so we worked so hard and uh and he did not let us skip any steps. He was suspending guys uh occasionally for you know, missing curfew or being a little late for practice. I mean, he, he was trying to clean the whole thing up and, uh, it was incredible just to watch him at work and watch, uh, how detailed he was. And, uh, he got that thing going so fast. It was incredible. Second year, my second year, um, we made the N C tournament, you know, t- two years after going four and 24, uh, we, we made the N C tournament and, uh, so literally, it just took him, uh, took him a year, about a year and a half to, to build the program. It was amazing.
1: How much of what he instilled in those those practice plans and the pace that you played with? I've heard oftentimes that you guys would work on fundamentals for the first half of practice, and then you turn into UNLV running rebels the, the second half. <laughs> how, how, how much of what he implemented in those practices do you still use today?
2: Oh, you can ask our, our guys with the Warriors. We we literally have a drill we call the Lute Olson drill and uh, you know we've got um it's like a 3 on 2 uh or it's like a, uh, a transition drill that you know turns into um kind of a a defensive drill And we used to do it at Arizona and and we do it throughout training camp we do it periodically during the year and um it's uh yeah something that um we we do quite a bit of and um you know, I've I've taken a lot from from loot I've taken a lot from Tex Winter, Phil Jackson, Greg Popovich. It's kind of everybody I've learned from. Our practice is uh, really just a uh, kind of a blend of all these different different uh, philosophies and and concepts.
1: In January of '84, um, everyone knows the the story about your father being assassinated. He was then president of that American. University in Beirut. Uh, what what I'm curious about is after after you find out the news, I'm curious because I know a lot of coaches have have gone through this where where their players are dealing with tragedy, um, you know, whether whether it be at home or with friends or, or what have you. Um, what is it that the coaching staff did to help support you during during that time?
2: Well, it really was like a family, you know, they, I mean, Coach Olson built it like a, a, a right way. We, we, uh, team meals at his house and barbecues and his wife, Bobby was kind of the team mom. And, and so right away, you felt like you were part of a family. And, and, uh, so at that time, um, you know, that's what I felt. I, everybody took care of me and, the coaches took care of me and uh, I ended up going to stay at coach Olson's house uh, for a couple of nights. And, um, you know, it was my uh, definitely my, my family uh, away from home. So I was lucky to have, have all those people in my life.
1: And as you're progressing there at Arizona, then, um, you know, people think about that, that fifth year, senior season, that the team that goes 35 and three, but, in 86, you're playing for the United States team that was loaded, uh, Sean Elliott, David Robinson, Ronnie Sykley, uh Kenny Smith, um, Lutz coaching the team, and you suffer a knee injury in the semifinals. I'm curious as to what you, what you remember about that specific day and, and where you thought your future was going to go from there.
2: Well, uh, more than anything, that experience was sort of when I realized I, I actually could compete mm. you know, with the best players in the country. I mean, the Pac, Pac-10 at the time was was not great. It was, it was decent, um, but, um, you know, you're, you're playing against the best in the ACC and the Big East. Um, you know, Muggsy Bones was out there hounding me full court and you know tommy hamaker from duke and you had all these all americans and and uh and it was it was it was an awesome experience and um i had a really good run played well for the team i was in the rotation kind of like the first guard off the bench and and then uh, tore my acl in in the semis and against brazil and um at that point i didn't really know know what was going to happen but uh i had uh, the team doctor there was was telling me that some people don't come back from that injury but you know immediately upon return uh to to tucson the uh, there was an orthopedic surgeon there named kim houston who who told me you know we're going to fix this and you're going to be fine and you're going to play again next year you're you know you're you're going to have to take a year off but you're going to rehab it and you'll be better than ever and um so that's that's what happened. I I I took the year off redshirted and in in many ways it was the best thing that could have happened because we had a pretty young team that was really blossoming and uh and that extra year uh, allowed us I think to to develop and become a, a great team that we were in 88.
1: It's pretty remarkable that Sean Elliott and yourself were on that team and and both of you guys made recoveries that at the time was thought to be know unfathomable that unfathomable that you'd reach the level of play you did after after suffering those those injuries the other thing that I've always found interesting was that team went on to beat a Russian team that Pete Newell said was the greatest Russian team that that they ever had so um pretty pretty talented squad you're playing on and obviously significant that that you were in that that rotation how much did your game change when you when you returned from injury
2: uh, not much, to be honest with you. I, it's not like I was doing much slashing and leaping beforehand anyway. So, uh, I was just, uh, pretty much the same player. I just took some time, um, over the summer. You know, to, it was, I, I, the injury happened in July of uh, 86. And so by the time the season started in 87, it was, you know, 15 months later or so. Um, so it, it took, it took about a year to really feel good, and then another few months to get my rhythm. And once we started the season in October, uh, I felt great, and um, my game didn't really change at all. And we 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 were loaded. We had, I think, we had five or six future NBA players, and uh, we also had Kenny Lofton, who went on to have an incredible baseball career. So we had we had a great team.
1: And it's interesting when you watch those those teams play from 30 years ago. It's wild to say that now, as you, as you brought up, um, (laughs) as, as I watch them play, you know, people think about you, your career and, you know, your time with the bulls and the spurs as, as being a sharpshooter. But it's funny because when I watch those teams play and you talked about it in practice, they actually remind me a lot of, of what you guys do with the warriors in terms of your pace and in terms of pushing the ball and shooting threes and, the ball movement is, is wild. I mean, it was different time back then in college basketball in general, but it just feels mm-hmm. like shades of, of the Warriors. When I, when I watch the old tapes of, of those Arizona teams.
2: Yeah. Well, I think the similarity is that we had uh, much like with the Warriors, we had uh, five guys on the floor who could all shoot and pass, you know, and it's such a, the game is so different when, when you have multiple skilled players who are all unselfish and um i think as a team that year we shot 55% for the season which is almost unheard of you know uh but everybody was so unselfish and, and skilled and the ball moved and and that's the best way to play basketball it's it's hard to find the personnel uh to be able to do that um but that's that's what we've got with the warriors now and that's what we had back then uh with that Arizona team and it's uh it's incredible to you know to to enjoy the the game that way
1: yeah it's it's pretty wild when i think about that sean elliotts and the craig mcmillans of the world at their size guys weren't handling the ball and passing as 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 they uh sort of do now it's it's it was uh kind of rare but that style of play was so interesting to me as you guys go to that uh 90 uh, the 88 ncaa tournament um i've always found it fascinating about your career it's like that's the one team that I think Arizona should have won the national championship that year. And you've had so much success later on. Was there anything that you guys lose to Oklahoma in the final four? And I know how, how difficult that was for you. Is, was there anything lessons that you could take away in losing that you, that you later applied to, to the rest of your career? <laughs>
2: uh not really since i <laughs> since I still haven't let that loss go <laughs> uh no, it's just you know it's the uh the nature of that tournament um it's, it's why it's so great is that it's you know one one game you're done uh, but it was it was uh, absolutely the uh you know the game that i that I still remember you know you, you remember the bad games more than the good ones and uh we were loaded Oklahoma was too i think they finished uh that season with the same record we did and uh like 35 and 3 or something and um they had mookie blaylock and Stacey king and harvey grant all these nba players and uh they had a great team but yeah that was a tough night for me and and uh, that's one i replay in my head and wish we could have back
1: and now i wish i didn't ask you about it i'm sorry <laughs> <laughs> ruined
2: ruined my day thank you there you lot. go i'm sorry
1: <laughs> uh so the good news though you, you come out of that and and you're you end up getting drafted as as a late second round pick um during that during that fifth year senior season uh, how much thought had you put into your future and and whether it was going to be as an nba player
2: you know at that point i think based on my Experience in '86, playing with all those guys from the ACC and the Big East. I, I thought, you know, I got a chance here. I could, uh, I could possibly make it um, in the NBA. Um, I didn't think it was likely, but I, I knew I'd get a chance that I could go to somebody's training camp. And my 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 thought at that time was, if I don't make it, um, I'm going to go and try to play in Europe. And uh, so I had. I, had designs on uh, a professional career. I just wasn't sure exactly how it would unfold. And it, it turned out perfectly that Phoenix drafted me. It was a little bit of a hometown favor, I think. You know, Phoenix was trying to, to uh, always trying to get the attention of Tucson. You know, the Suns uh, have never really uh, grabbed Tucson's attention. And uh, I think they were, they were trying to get a little interest from tucson and it was a little bit of a like i said a hometown favor but uh it's a great experience to be there and they kept me around for the year and helped me get started
1: the, the same way they did with deandre Aiden, right i mean same thing <laughs>
2: very similar <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh,
1: what are your memories of draft day
2: oh it was so different back then they they only f- televised the first round uh and I was pretty sure I wasn't going in the first round. You know, I, I was. I remember watching late in the first, thinking, you know, yes, maybe I could get picked here late in the first. And, uh, but I wasn't. As soon as the first round ended, I was just at my mom's house in the Palisades. And um, I got a phone call from a reporter telling me that the Suns had taken me. This was a couple hours after the, the, the draft ended, I think just showing you how old I am, you know, no internet, no televised second round or anything. And so a reporter gave me the news and uh, I was, I was pretty excited. It's
1: awesome. It's awesome memory. Uh, you know, it's funny. People talk about you playing for, and you just mentioned, I mean, Tex Winter and Phil Jackson and Greg Popovich, but you play for Cotton Fitzsimmons too. And, and Lenny Wilkins, yeah. um, two outstanding coaches that I think a lot of young people today don't, don't realize the impact that they had in the game. Um, when you first get to the Suns, what what, um, what was it about Cotton Fitzsimmons that stood out to you?
2: Well, he was so different from Luke. Um, he was uh, – his nickname was like the Riverboat Gambler. You know, he was uh, – he was from Missouri. He had this thick southern accent. He had this great sense of humor. He was aggressive. Um, he wanted his teams to play fast. And everything was just up-tempo, fun, um, wisecracks. Uh, He was a real character. And uh, he turned that team around quickly, too. Uh, That team made the conference finals against the Lakers, I think, a year after winning about 28 games. So uh, that was Kevin Johnson, Dan Marley, uh, Tom Chambers, Jeff Hornacek, a lot of good, a lot of really good players and uh but cotton was was a great coach and i think more than anything what I remembered thinking was you know you every coach is is so unique and different based on his own personality and cotton was was authentic and uh everyone loved to be around
1: him. When you move on to the Cavs and you're playing for, for Lenny Wilkins, uh, you actually started 20 games when Craig Elo was hurt and you had a chance to guard Jordan. Um, how'd that experience go?
2: That was really when my career got started. You know, the, the Suns gave me a chance uh, to hang around the league, but I never really played much. Uh, the Cavs gave me a, a shot to play. And that that first year with them, Gave me an idea that I could actually do this and make it in the league. Um, I didn't know for how long, but uh, you know, at at minimum, I could uh, I could hang on a little bit and get some playing time. So I, I was thrilled and uh, loved Lenny. Lenny was a great coach, Hall of Fame coach. Very quiet, um, very reserved, but uh, you know, very much into the details of the game. And we only had a handful of plays. We, we, he was, I think he, he enjoyed, uh, keeping things simple, um, in terms of the menu, but making sure that, uh, we, we executed really well, you know, the, the few things that we did run. And we had a, we had a great team, Larry Nance, Brad Doherty, Mark Price. And, uh, that's, it was kind of a theme of, of my career. I kept getting lucky and going to, great teams and uh, it's a lot easier to find a role on great teams than on bad ones. You know, bad ones, you, there's, there's no such thing as a role player on a bad team, you know, but on a great team, you get a, get a chance to, to help a team win. You can carve out a role and it's, uh, it's, it's just so much fun.
1: How much have you taken that into what you do now today? Also, uh, the idea of understanding where you can make a role player fit into, to your rotation. And the reason that I, that I asked that is, you know um, I think the one thing that I've so admired watching from afar, you, you coach the warriors is, you know, you get the accolades for, you know, uh, you see Steph Curry out there and, and uh, you know, the three point percentage that he's got, or we see, you know, what Kevin Durant's been able to do and, and how, you, I think you've gotten a lot of credit for the chemistry uh, you know, and making guys fit into the rotation. But what I found interesting is how you implement rookies and try to get them minutes during the year. And, you know, guys like Quinn Cook, who have shown significant talent, you know, in, in the G League, all of a sudden, you know, and, and certainly at Duke, like you're finding a place to, to get them in. So how much of your own career, I guess, did you, do you then look at role players sort of differently and, and trying to find a way to, to build their confidence?
2: Yeah, a lot of that is my experience. You know, I played 15 years and and only maybe seven or eight of the years was I in the rotation of teams I played on. And the other seven or eight, I was kind of, you know, 11th, 12th man. And, uh, you know, when you're the 12th man and you never get in, you you don't even feel like you're on the team sometimes. And um, I thought uh, I learned a valuable lesson from Phil Jackson in Chicago. When he would just play everybody and it's easier to do, obviously, when you've got great talent and you can afford to, to gamble and, and maybe even lose a few games along the way, uh, by playing everybody and giving guys an opportunity. But Phil used to do that routinely. And, um, there's a real strength, uh, in, in chemistry that comes from that. Everybody feels more invested. Everybody feels more part of it. And, uh, you can get to that point. Um, the group seems stronger and, and uh, you, you build a lot of momentum. So it's something I try to do.
1: So then when you hit the game winner against the Jazz and there's the, the video of you saying that you'll be ready if Stockton comes off of Jordan, um, that's, that's something then that, that's built up in terms of confidence over, over the course of a season?
2: Yeah, I, I think uh, you know. At that point, I was I was in the rotation with with the Bulls. I was playing every night, and and um, you know, it was. Um, I, I think hitting a big shot is for some people. For some guys, it's natural. You know, uh, for others, you kind of have to learn how to do it. I had to learn uh, how to let go, and and um, I think the biggest thing with with a big shot, you have to uh accept the fact that you might fail, you know, and and that's a hard thing if you're a perfectionist. Um it's a hard thing to come to grips with. but it's the only way to to approach it. You know, you have to have to have no fear of failure. And um so I it took me a while to, to really feel comfortable in those situations and, and uh but playing with the Bulls gave me a lot of experience and you know playing in big games and, and getting Plenty of opportunities to to make a big play.
1: As far as Jordan is is concerned, uh, I, I've heard you talk about the idea that um, it was once he understood the team concept that sort of everything changed for him. What do you mean by that?
2: Well, this this was not my own observation. This was um, this was the what the the Bulls players who had been there before me you know, told me, uh, they told me a story about uh, the finals in 91, their first title when they beat, uh, beat the Lakers. And, uh, you know, early in Michael's career, he was just putting up these monster numbers. I think he averaged 36 a game one year, but, you know, they weren't getting over the hump. And I think Phil Jackson's whole philosophy was, uh, to get him to trust his teammates and uh i think during that f- finals um uh, the, the the story that went around the, the bulls in later years was that um uh, that d- michael was getting double teamed and and um during the the, the i think the, the deciding game and Phil called a timeout and said who's open and uh and michael wouldn't respond at first and Phil asked again, who's open? And, uh, you know, Michael knows the game as well as anybody. Finally, he, he just said, Paxson. And Phil said, we'll throw him the damn ball then. <laughs> and uh, he can go back to, to the box score. I'll bet you Paxson had like 15 points in the fourth quarter. I remember watching the game. Uh, but a lot of people with the Bulls who were, who were there, you know, I didn't come until the next year, but a lot of people with that team told me later on, they just said that, you know, that was the moment where it all clicked where he realized, all right, I got to trust everybody, trust my teammates. And if I do, it, you know, makes us even more powerful.
1: A lot was made this past NBA season that of sort of those same ideas as you pushing that onto, to Kevin Durant for that same idea, a guy that's just so dominant and could score basically anytime he, he sets his mind to it, finding others would you say that's fair that's there's a comparison there
2: uh, i don't know I, i'm not sure that, I, i'm i'm not sure if that's if i would compare it um i know i did tell kevin that story uh about michael and and uh you know i i, I think there are times when every great player great offensive player is trying to be too aggressive and needs to uh, to kind of distribute and lighten the pressure on himself so uh, but every player is unique to himself and and uh, Kevin can get any shot he wants any time because of his size and uh, and he but he's naturally so unselfish that uh, he doesn't really have any desire to shoot every time and and take over you know, he will but I think he's he's more comfortable when everybody's just kind of in the flow and doing their thing
1: in terms of that uh, sticking with that bulls team um, the one thing about Michael Jordan and the, and the stories, you know, we've heard again, the, there's so many iconic stories that, that you're involved with the, the fight with Michael Jordan um, that you had during, during practice. But to me, like what stands out within all that is this idea of his just Intense competitiveness, how much of his desire to win all the time also came within the idea of helping the team win and making you guys get better?
2: Oh, that was the entire purpose I think there's there's no question that was his his way of motivating the group you know and and Michael always felt that if you couldn't handle the pressure in practice um, that you weren't going to be able to handle the pressure in a playoff game. And he was right. And so he, he personally put pressure on everybody um, day in, day out. And he, the way he approached practice was unlike anything I've ever seen from anyone else. You know, it it was the the level of competition was just off the charts because he set that, that tone. What does that look like
1: for an outsider?
2: Um, trying to win every single uh drill every single moment um yelling, screaming, you know, getting on people um, just lifting the entire bar, and uh so you had to be ready for sure
1: the also on that team, of course, Dennis Rodman ends up playing a role, and his skill set was so unique um and and so interesting how what did you learn from Phil Jackson in terms of, of dealing with a a personality like a a Dennis Rodman?
2: Well, Phil was great about giving everyone space and, and uh, recognizing that everybody was different. Everybody needed um, to be treated differently. You know, you just can't have a set of rules and, and say, all right, this is, this is, you know, this is it my way or the highway type thing. You've got to, understand people. You've got to find a pretty unique balance between discipline and uh, sort of freedom. And um, and I think he handled Dennis perfectly. And uh, Michael and Phil were really kind of a, uh, a pair. You know, they led the team as a duo. And so they worked off each other. And Dennis had so much respect for both of them that he was never really uh a problem you know he was a lot of that stuff was an act anyway he um he was pretty quiet off the court and uh guys really liked him and, and uh you know he just he he'd put on the show when the media came around but um but he was uh he was exactly what we needed because we were we were a very skilled team um uh, but when he arrived we we had that toughness and and, and defensive Tenacity that similar to what Draymond Green does for us uh with the Warriors. Uh, Dennis was just a monster like Draymond is.
1: Yeah, I, w- I was actually going to ask you about how you see the similarities with the two as far as as basketball players go on the court, and especially in terms of their defensive abilities. Because I think mm-hmm. you know, people talk about robin's rebounding, but I think they forget, especially during the Pistons years too. I mean, he guarded every position on the floor. Um, so you've you've certainly noticed those those similarities. That's been something that you've uh, thought about as as a coach as the as the years have gone through.
2: Oh yeah, yeah, very similar. Um, the game is much different now. You know the the rules are different. Uh, there aren't many low post aircraft carrier guys who dominate games like Shaq and Tim Duncan and Patrick Ewing and Hakeem. Those guys don't really exist anymore. So it's almost all uh, defensive versatility, you know, guarding six, seven wings and then guarding six foot point guards. And then, you know, s- switching back and forth between all that stuff. And Draymond does that better than anybody in the league. Um what the, There wasn't a lot of switching back then, Um but that team, that Bulls team, I think was a little ahead of its time because, uh mm-hmm the versatility that between Michael Scottie, Dennis Rodman, Ron Harper, Tony Kukoc, that team would have been phenomenal in today's game. They would have switched everything and just been uh, incredibly dominant. And Draymond and Dennis basically fill that, that that same type role.
1: When I talk to NBA players, they they always bring up the point they feel like fans miss and that is great organizations function differently from the top to the bottom. Um, than, than organizations that, that struggle and it's, it's consistent. And so when you look at a, you know, when you go to a Spurs practice or, you know, at their workout facility or what have you, things just, just run differently. What was it about the Bulls that during that run, other than Phil and Michael, that, that was, that was the reason that there was so much success there at that time?
2: Well, Jerry Krauss built a great roster around michael um you know scotty pippen was acquired on a draft day trade uh with with Horace grant um, you had uh, multiple role players who came in um, over the years who kind of really uh, played a big you know big role in the success of the team but the the, the important thing to know really is that everything even the the best organizations everything is built around that transcendent superstar player. And when I say transcendent, I mean, he transcends, um, you know, the the game itself and and is a culture setter. And the coach obviously helps. um, But if you don't have, you know, Michael Jordan, if you don't have Steph Curry, Kevin Durant, if you don't have Scottie Pippen, you know, Tim Duncan, doesn't matter if you're Red Auerbach or Greg, you know Greg Popovich. I mean, you just—it doesn't work. You have to have talent, but you—but that talent has to build uh, from the inside uh, the culture that, that leads to winning, and that was the, the main thing. I mean, Michael retired, and everybody left, and the, the Bulls didn't get to the playoffs for another 10 years or something. So, uh, the, the, the good organizations add the right pieces, and and treat the players well and put them in a position to succeed but it's it's the great players I think who make great organizations.
1: In regards to that greatness, I mean now the talk with you know people want to say that LeBron James is a better player than than Michael Jordan was and what have you. Not worried about getting into that and you know unless you want to answer for people, but I but my bigger <laughs> thing is I'm curious as to is there a a, a story that you can share? that sheds light on just how great Michael Jordan was um, as someone who played alongside him?
2: Oh, gosh. I mean, it, it was every single night that that you, you witnessed his greatness. He, he had such a, a dominant presence on the floor, even in a league filled with superstar players and, you know, the world's best athletes. He was so much the alpha in the gym and i think teams were scared of him i think referees were afraid of him i think everybody was afraid of him and uh he was so good uh every single night he never took a night off he knew that people were coming uh from from all over the world to buy tickets to see him play he took that very seriously and he'd put on a show night after night his, the skill level um his shooting his, his footwork was, uh, was just amazing. And, uh, and the physical dominance in, a, in an era when you could, you could be very physical. Uh, Michael played through all that stuff and, uh, and just absolutely destroyed people and owned the league for, you know, a decade.
1: Well, the, the decade that followed, you end up with the Spurs and, you know, as you mentioned, Greg Popovich, and you're with Tim Duncan, who, who might've been the best player for his era um what about tim duncan's greatness that stood out to you
2: um just the consistency and the humility you know he he loved loved the game he still loves it you know he would still be playing if his body uh would allow him to do so um he absolutely uh loved practice loved the camaraderie never never tooted his own horn, never really wanted much to do with commercials or endorsements or anything like that, and had the ultimate respect from his teammates uh, as a result of the way he conducted himself every day. And uh, he, Steph Curry reminds me a lot of Tim. You know, Steph's more playful and, and uh, more joyful. He, he expresses his joy more so than Tim, but very similar combination of humility and and um, and love for the game and and confidence in in his in himself and it's a great powerful combination
1: it's really interesting um when when your career uh came to a close, how much thought was put into going into coaching as opposed to what you ended up doing broadcasting and, and then eventually becoming a GM?
2: I think I knew I wanted to coach at some point, but my kids, uh, when I retired in 2003, my kids were like nine and nine, seven and four or something like that. So, I, you know, I, I really didn't feel like I wanted to be a, a way uh, for that long i was i was ready to do something that allowed me to stay home a lot more and and uh tv was perfect you know um tnt gave me the opportunity right away to uh to do to do games once a week with marv albert and that was an incredible opportunity it was so much fun and uh, absolutely loved that that time in my life cuz i was i was home a lot but still able to stay in the game and and uh, travel just enough, but not too much, and uh, and be part of everything.
1: How much were you able to learn about the game watching as a broadcaster?
2: I think uh, the best part um, of being a broadcaster in terms of helping me prepare to coach was, was the, the brief visit we would have before every game with the opposing coaches. So, you know, you, you do a game, you sit down with each coach for five, 10 minutes, just to, just to get some inside scoop to help you with the broadcast. Um, I learned so much in those meetings. Some, some coaches were more revealing than others, but they were all really gracious with their time. And, um, it was, uh, it's, you know, that's where you really kind of got a, a look behind the curtain, so to speak. And, um, and I started taking notes um, pretty early on in my uh, broadcasting days with an eye on coaching. And I started keeping files on, you know, things I liked, things I didn't like, uh, things that I wanted to uh, employ if I coached. And so I had an eye on it. I just wanted to wait for um, the right time.
1: Well, the the one thing about after your broadcasting career comes to a close, you end up with the sons and that's where your association with Rick Welts comes into play and, you know, just gets into the Hall of Fame. Um, and you've been talking about how great that is and, and wrote about him. Uh, what kind of impact has, has Rick Welts had on you and on on the NBA?
2: Yeah, working with Rick was one of the best parts of uh, my tenure in, in Phoenix. I was there three years as GM and, and um, Rick was team president, so we worked pretty closely together and uh he's just a, one of those guys you just want to be around he's got this great energy and uh instills a, um, a sense of camaraderie in the group and and uh everybody in the organization loved him and um when he went to golden state from phoenix i, w- I went back to tv after those three years in phoenix and when he went to golden state you know a couple of years later um I I knew they were on the right track because they were hiring really good people across the board, and uh, so it made uh, this Warriors job that that much more enticing when it did open up.
1: Um, as far as the Warriors are concerned, obviously there was a lot of talk about what your decision was going to be, and and you know whether you'd go to Golden State. There's where you're going to go to the Knicks. It, what was it about the Warriors and their future? I mean, we see it now and it seems obvious, but, but at that time, what was it about the organization that <laughs> that, that had you so interested?
2: Well, some of it is obvious. I mean, it, you know, all you had to do was watch them play. It's very rare that a 50 win uh, <laughs> team uh, opens up in terms of the head coaching position. And uh, I had watched them, you know, Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, I'd watch these guys light it up. Uh in the playoffs and and they were young and they they looked like they were just getting ready to to win big so uh that was that was the obvious part you know talent is everything as a coach and and uh, so that was the easy part but the the maybe the part that wasn't as obvious to everybody uh, but but was important to me was every time i went to golden state as a player uh, i could feel this great energy uh, in the crowd and, and, and as a broadcaster, um, uh, the, 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 the crowd at Oracle over the years just blew me away. The, the energy, uh, the, the passion for the game. Um, uh, and, and this was at a time when the Warriors were pretty lousy, you know, but you'd come in as an opponent and you'd feel this, this electricity in the building. And, you know, that's, that's so important to play in front of fans who love the game like that. It, it adds so much to uh, what you're trying to accomplish. And uh, so that was a big factor um, and not to mention living in the Bay area and, and uh, staying in California, but um, I've always loved the Bay. I always loved playing against the Warriors and doing their games here as a broadcaster. And so this was uh pretty much a no brainer when it all came down to him
1: one of the things that's always stood out to me about about you as as a as a coach and um as a player is that you've been able to seemingly take some big moments um and uh Matt Muebach who we mentioned earlier your your former college teammate uh he's he's mentioned you you've been able to take big moments and and make them feel not big and he he told me a story about your team being down 3-1 to the thunder uh famously having your your comeback in that series but you're driving to the arena down 3-1 and you call him to tell him some random golf story and and Matt <laughs> Matt called me after this and says you won't believe this I just got off the phone with Kerr and he you know how much pressure he's under and he's calling me to tell me about some golf story so <laughs> I was just curious to ask, you know, how do you do that? How do you take these moments that, to the rest of the world, feel just monumental and, and um, at least somehow fake it, if nothing else?
2: Uh, you know, it's a good question. I, I don't really know. Uh, I, I think it's um, maybe perspective, you know. Um, you know, we all want to win like crazy and, you know, moments seem seem huge and all that. but. Um, it, it, you just, it, you know, it's a game in the end, and and uh, you play better if you're loose and relaxed. And um, I think I think you have to you have to be that way. You got to feel that way in order for your team to feel that, and for them to be loose and relaxed. Um, they need to feel that atmosphere with the team, and so we try to not take not let uh, things you know get get too serious and to feel too critical and all that stuff so i don't know i mean it's uh just feels right
1: <laughs> it makes it makes sense we, um you've talked about the how that the, the part of the fun for you in coaching is you know melding all these different personalities together and it's interesting to me because you know, Phil Jackson famously did that with the Bulls, and then Greg Popovich famously, from almost an international perspective, did that with with the Spurs. And, and uh, Sean Elliott had told me on a, on a podcast long ago that, you know – Popovich was great at taking guys out to dinner and and uh, you know telling them about the escargot and and uh, the wine and mm-hmm. and all that. Uh, what is it that that you've done to you know try to bring all these really fascinating, interesting personalities together on on the Warriors?
2: Uh, you know, the, both Phil and Pop impacted me in a big way in that regard. Just trying to to change the subject away from basketball. Sometimes you know bring in. Interesting guest speakers uh maybe taking the team to a movie, maybe uh you know having a ping pong tournament or you know doing something totally random and different uh, and and I think just the conversation every day um you know, you you talk with the group, but you also get to know the individuals and uh you communicate with them daily. You get to know their families. you get to know what they what they love uh, what they're interested in and I think keeping it different is one of the keys it's it's what makes pop and Phil pretty unique and different and um uh, you know I think we all have to be authentic to ourselves but uh I think that the n b a season is such a grind and such a long haul that you've you've gotta you've gotta change things up and and uh you know keep it interesting if
1: you can as far as the, this current roster is concerned i mean obviously we everyone knows steph curry and clay thompson just the records they broke in and, and their success as shooters kevin durant you know one of the best shooters in the league history never mind for a guy that's you know over you know six eight i mean uh, anyone at that size i mean it, certainly the, the the list is very short i mean it's larry bird it's you know, Dirk and, 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 uh, and KD, you have some of the greatest shooters of all time on, on your roster. Um, in what ways have you been able to relate as a guy that is, is also one of the best shooters in, in NBA history, and what ways have you been able to connect with those guys about just the art of shooting the craft of shooting the mindset? Uh, what ways have you guys been able to have that connection?
2: You know, there's all there's almost none of that to be honest with you Um, because I I think and I was sort of a marginal player these guys are all superstars I think it's very different I I connect much better with um, with the reserve because I can um, I can remember what it's like to be a reserve I'll never know what it's like to be a superstar to have that kind of pressure the shooting part that's you know I don't ever talk to uh, Steph or Clay or KD about their uh, their form. I mean they're such great shooters already. Uh, I, I, maybe once a year I might mention something to one of them about a, maybe a little tip if if I see something. But they're they're all such great players, such great shooters. Um, I, I don't really have to say much of anything, uh, and I definitely don't mention my own career because <laughs> it's nowhere close to theirs.
1: The how about the role that uh, Bruce Frazier plays? I know, you know, former Arizona teammate of yours, he goes by Q um, and people see him as the uh, as the uh, gray haired man with the with the beard, you know, uh, working with uh, Steph and, and Clay pregame and um, giving them passes. From what I've understood that he's, he's played a big role just in terms of, um, you know, keeping those guys in a great mental state.
2: Yeah, he he's done a great job. Uh most interesting man in the world we call him. Kinda <laughs> kinda looks like the Dos Equis guy. But uh yeah, he's uh he, he works closely with uh with Steph and K D. Um you know, he's a little bit of a uh horse whisperer, you know, he's uh he keeps guys loose and keeps them ready. Um he's worked pretty closely with Steve Nash over the years and developed uh some some routines and and workouts that, that steve used when he was flying steve's a, a consultant of ours and, and so um there's been a lot of uh, a lot of really good stuff that's sort of translated from steve through q to to steph and kd and um it's fun to watch them all work together steve will come up occasionally and work with our guys too and and q has been great he's uh he's just got away with people and. And uh, a way of keeping things fun and loose and uh, just enjoying the whole process.
1: Uh, Can you uh, take me through the day when you found out that you guys were signing DeMarcus Cousins?
2: Yeah, I was actually uh, in San Diego um, where our our kind of our home base is, our family home base. we spend a couple months in the summer there. And we I was driving up to L.A. to meet Bob Myers, our GM. Uh, we were going to meet with a, a free agent in L.A. And uh, Bob called me on the drive up, and he said, uh, said well, um, slight change in plans. We're still going to meet with the free agent. But uh, after that, we're going to talk to DeMarcus Cousins' agent because he wants to come play for us. <laughs> and I was. I was like, "Excuse me!" <laughs> it, it was totally out of the blue. I mean, you know, we we you know, we only had the, our, the mini mid level exception, five and a half million, and you know, he was a twenty million dollar player last year, so we didn't see that one coming. But um, it all worked out, and uh, we spent the whole day uh, calling our our players, our key players, you know, asking their opinion, uh, talking about. Talking to DeMarcus, you know, asking him questions, how he thought he'd fit in, Um, kind of going back and forth between uh, his agent, him. He wasn't there in LA, so we were getting DeMarcus on the phone. Um, It was all really, really a quick transaction. And uh, I think it's going to be great. I think he's going to really make this season a lot more interesting for us. And uh, it's going to be, going to be a challenge that our guys are going to be ready for it'll keep things uh interesting and challenging all at once but you know he's an incredibly talented player so uh, we're excited to coach him
1: it seemed like the craziest thing for everyone involved in in the nba world but as media members fans we were all watching this thing saying i can't believe this but i think back to your time with the bulls and and phil jackson was able to implement you know, these, these different, again, these, these personalities that came in from the outside when people were shocked that the bulls would grab them. I mean, people think of Dennis Rodman, but also Tony Kukoc. I mean, after everything that had gone down with, um, you know, Jordan and Pippen with Kukoc at the Olympics to then bring him into the fold, how much of that do you think that you've drawn on already or, or even thought about as uh, as you're trying to incorporate DeMarcus into what you're doing on a daily basis?
2: Well the thing in the NBA is if you have to have the uh foundation uh, in place already uh to to be able to bring in, you know, d- different different guys who, you know, who maybe maybe if if um you know, you didn't have the foundation, you'd be worried about the chemistry or that kind of thing, but when you have the core that we do and the the strength of the foundation with Raymond and Andre Igadala and Steph and Katie and Clay and Sean Livingston, when you have all that, um, you, you, the, the, the strength of the foundation is going to handle whatever comes our way. And um, and I think DeMarcus is is in a position where, you know, he needs to help him rebuild his career after the injury. We need him to help us win another title um, because it's hard to win three in a row and it's going to be a long season. And we need each other, and that's a good good situation to be in.
1: I, I know you need to uh, get going, but I'd be remiss if I didn't, you know, ask you about um, your takes politically. But what, but what I'm most curious on that front is just sort of about what you were talking about about you know these different people and these these strong personalities and and sort of this family that that you've created. What is it that you think the the rest of the the country could learn right now about what goes on inside a successful NBA locker room uh,
2: that's uh i don't know that's a that's a pretty ambitious uh, metaphor <laughs>
1: fair fair we've
2: got yeah we we got we got we got we got big problems in this country but i i do think that uh, it's worth talking about um know why basketball is important you know and, and sports in general um i've had a lot of people come up to me and say how much fun they have watching us play and there's so much joy and passion and energy and and how great it is at this time uh, in our country's existence you know just uh, how much anger there is out there um just how great it is to be able to uh to sit down and watch the warriors play and that that means a lot to me you know i i think i think you know sports in general are a great diversion and hopefully we can be role models for some kids and and an example of how to how to get along and how to compete and how to you know play fair and all that stuff but uh I, i'm not that naive to think it's going to translate to politics but if, if we can make people happy then that's the main thing
1: well i do appreciate that that you've been willing to speak out on, on social injustices. And I think it's been a huge example. I have, um, a 14 year old, a 12 year old, two, uh, daughters, and then a one and a half year old son. And my, and my daughters, you know, um, they know at this point they're, they're not even big basketball fans, even though, you know, that's been disappointing for me, but they, but they know about the impact that, Steve Kerr has made socially, and the things that you speak out about, and it's I, it takes courage. And I, I just want to thank you for for being willing to to speak out when you know that the the response might not always be positive. So so thank you for that.
2: No, oh, I appreciate it. Um, yeah, it's uh, the times are calling for it for sure. Um, we just uh, we're in a weird place right now as a country, and it's scary. So I think people need to need to speak out and you know i think dignity matters i think respect matters and i think there's not not enough of it right now
1: yeah and it's 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 odd for me to to watch this country as you know playing basketball my whole life and being involved in basketball and you know the the idea of the the friendships and the relationships that you build and connections but also just dealing with people of different backgrounds has always been something that's meant so much to me and obviously it's something that you you recognize and personify. And I, 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 uh, I really appreciate it. It, It's meant a lot, not just again, I, I, it may be ambitious, but I do, I do think it's, it's made a difference. So, so I thank you for that. And uh, thank you for your time today, coach. And um, I wish you a ton of success on the season. Really appreciate it. Take care. Again, huge thanks to Steve Kerr. Uh, Unbelievable to think that in four years, the success that he's had with the Warriors, but I guess when you think about his history, Sort of all makes sense. All the people he learned from and just the kind of person that he is. Huge thanks to to Coach Steve Kerr. Uh, I want to remind people that if you enjoy this podcast, please rate and review us on iTunes and subscribe. You don't want to miss some of the guests we have coming up. Steve Kerr obviously was unbelievable. We've had Dick Vitale, Bob Huggins. Check out the old ones. And you're gonna to wanna to make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any of the ones coming up. If you do not have an iPhone, you can always check us out on Spreaker. And of course, you should check out our website, 40yearcoach.com, to learn more about what we are doing. Uh, special thanks also to Mark Eisenberg. I wanna thank Sidney Smith and I wanna thank R.E.K. for editing the podcast. Also wanna thank Matt Muhlbach for setting this interview up. Appreciate you, Matt. Um, I'm Adam Stanko. You can catch me on Twitter at Naismith Lives, and you can catch this podcast on Twitter at 40YearCoach. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time.